Welcome to Food for Thought at Loaves and Fishes. My name is David Hott, the CEO of Loaves and Fishes, and I'm honored to spend time with you talking about things that matter in our community, specifically helping to feed the need. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another podcast at Loaves and Fishes. Today, we have a wonderful uh, person joining us, Mike Laracos, who is the executive director of Abound Foods in Southern California, who's going to bring a wonderful conversation into the space. He's got some incredible stuff happening. The history that he provides from being uh, a chef in a kitchen all the way up to what he's working on now, wonderful projects that not only speak to food recovery. They also speak to how his organization is looking at health outcomes. And I really love, like he's a guy, but if you want to figure out a solution to a problem, you give Mike a call, slate time so that you two can have like a thought experiment together. And Mike helps to solve problems. And I really have appreciated the relationship that we've been able to create in, in, you know, going to conferences together and brainstorming. And, you know, we even walked through a tornado that came through when we were at, at a conference and we got to stand underneath these awnings and see hailstorms. And, you know, the people that were there hadn't been through that. And, and I was like the one that had experience and, you know, we'll talk about that. I'm sure a bit, but, uh, that kind of gives you an idea, you know, Mike is not new to this space. He's been doing wonderful work in Southern California and then beyond. So I'm really honored to have him as part of this conversation. So Mike, welcome to the podcast. Can you kind of give us an idea of who Mike is and, and just some background? Absolutely. Thank you for letting me join you. I really appreciate it. Uh, I am Mike Learakis. I am a 35-year food industry lifer third-generation restaurateur whose dad ran restaurant chains and was a chef and didn't want his boys to stay in the restaurant business. So I ended up going into poultry processing and food distribution, but ultimately was a restaurateur for 30 years. Along the way, I got to experience every step of the food service industry and the food uh, system in general. 11 years ago in, in, in uh, my county of Orange, in Southern California, the public health officer started a program to recover excess edible food as a way of addressing food insecurity. Again, based on that premise that or an understanding that 30 to 40 percent of all the food we produce is wasted and one in nine people are food insecure. The math is pretty basic. And the idea, if you can recover some of that food and get it to those in need, it's a win win. And that's how we started. We started with just Orange County. We started uh, a food donation program in my restaurant because I certainly wasn't going to go to my colleagues until I tried it out. And what I found is when I started donating food, uh, there were uh, a myriad of cost benefits that I didn't envision. Okay, We all knew about uh, you get a tax deduction on what you donate. Quite honestly, not sure I ever took that tax deduction. I don't think we ever did. More importantly, it reduced my waste hauling fees. Number one, I right-sized along with recycling of other materials. I right-sized my uh, waste hauling and was able to reduce my costs. When I started to identify how much food and what it was we were donating at the end of every night, uh, we could make production and procurement changes. So there was a bottom line benefit to my food cost. Uh, there was a marketing component of it. When people found out that I was sending accessible food to a, a homeless shelter down the street that was feeding people, um, 
you know, that that became a marketing tool. People wanted to come to my restaurant rather than a national chain that was 25 feet next to me across the street. Um, <clears throat> and then also my staff members, um, you know, were engaged. Someone that we hired as a hostess or a server or a cook, to them, they were changing the world well beyond just their job in that restaurant. So our employee retention um, became insane. And, you know, for us, employee turnover is always an issue in the food service industry, especially the restaurant business. And anytime you can reduce that, it's a it's a cost benefit. So, you know, we were very happy. We were patting ourselves on the back because we were donating excess food. Um, a buddy of mine who was with the Rotary Club, I ran into him dining in my restaurant one night and he goes, Hey Mike, did you guys donate, you know, like seven pans of lasagna to the pantry down the street? I said, Oh yeah. Yeah. Very proud of it from a catering that was under attended. He goes, yeah, we threw it away. I'm like you threw it away. Why couldn't serve it. We didn't have enough help. Uh, the, you know, they didn't have enough cold storage. It was going to go bad. So they tossed it. I'm like, but why did they receive it then if they didn't have room for it? I mean, we could have sent it to, a hundred agencies, why did they take it? And that was an example of one of these gaps that existed in this charitable feeding network. Now I got to share a story with you right down the street from my restaurant, which was on the border of the city of Orange and the city of Anaheim. So I was down the street from Major League Baseball's Angel Stadium of Anaheim, also down the street from the Honda Center, the hockey arena, and Disneyland was you know four or five miles away. There was a riverbed, the Santa Ana River, that ran uh, maybe about two blocks away from my restaurant, and it went right next to the stadium and the arena. 3,500 homeless people living inside that dry riverbed. Our co-founder, the public health officer for the County of Orange, Dr. Handler, we go into that riverbed, and I actually went with law enforcement, uh, plainclothes law enforcement, and we saw that just the absolutely inhumane, deplorable condition that these people were living in willfully. Um, it was just tragic. The, the we, we learned about the sexual assaults that occur on a regular basis. Um, it was just terrible. But we saw everybody walking around with these plastic grocery bags, something heavy, and it looked like a bowling ball. So we walked up to a guy and we we're like, hey, excuse me, what's in the bag? And he opens it up. It's an eight pound turkey breast, processed turkey breast. And we go, oh, what are you going to do with this? I don't know, bro, I'm on probation. Can't have a knife. I don't know how I'm going to eat this. And, and I remember telling Dr. Handel, like, that's the problem. Everybody did the right thing. And yet still we have a problem with that food being wasted. In other words, a distributor, processor, or manufacturer donated that turkey breast to the food bank. Food bank sent it to this agency. The agency either didn't have the staff volunteers or skill set to do anything with that turkey breast. They were past the suggested sell-by date. They were worried that they were getting into the danger zone. So they just handed it out. And ultimately, all these turkey breasts were rotting in a dry riverbed. And we're like, there's a gap in the system. We just don't have enough logistics capability. We don't have enough cold storage. And we're working with a disconnected network of nonprofit agencies. And that was one of those aha moments for us. Right on. And what you talk about is something that many people are truly unaware of because not because they don't care. It's just that they don't know. They may not know that that's what's happening in their backyard. Right. And so not all of us go out and actively search for those areas that are misses and those areas that 
contribute to that that gap, Mike. And not all of us are willing. Like you and I have a different personality that we're willing to go in and find what's truly going on. Not everybody has that uh, same spirit, right? And plus, we're both food guys who don't want food to go to waste. And we know that there's a need from a food insecurity perspective. Why put it in the ground? Why not let us put it in the bellies of those that are in need? So how would you say you took your observation, both from being a restauranteur to now you're seeing this happen in your backyard? What did that evolve into related to activity that you're part of now? Like, what was that? So you had that aha moment. What happened next? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that. Um, we, we really decided we were going to approach this from a food industry perspective. In other words, most of these efforts are done from a nonprofit uh, perspective. Really well-meaning people trying to do good, the foot soldiers in this uh, human sa- uh, health and safety net, uh, the services safety net. Uh, but ultimately, we ignore the food industry. The food industry is not as concerned about liability. We keep talking about liability protection and the Bill Emerson Good Samaritan Act and an enhanced Good Samaritan Act. It is never about liability. I used to use the same (laughs) reason for not participating. But the reality is that, um, and we had several large companies and small companies make it very clear to us, Disney being one of them. Uh, Our local baseball team, the Angels, made it very clear. We asked them to participate and they went, yeah, happy to. And then a week later, they come back and they go, yeah, we're out. I'm like, wait, wait a minute, you have, you have liability protection. Well, yeah, but unfortunately, the last thing we need is a homeless guy getting sick on a hot dog with our wrapper on it because the media is going to destroy us. It's a bell you can't unring. And that was the reason all of us were hesitant in participating in it and why we are still hesitant in donating excess edible food. First of all, there's a misunderstanding of the complexities associated with it. Many people think it's just, Take your food and get it to a nonprofit. Well, I learned that lesson. That nonprofit couldn't use it all. So it ultimately was was wasted. And then also, sometimes there's a type of food that is specialized and can't easily be distributed. So as we saw these gaps that existed, we went, we've got to fill these gaps. In order to get the food industry to participate, we've got to be transparent. And we have to show that we're able to mitigate food safety concerns, number one. And secondly, If we're going to do this, and someone's got to pay the cost of this endeavor, so let's make it cost effective. If we have that eight-pound turkey breast, for example, why aren't we using a nonprofit or any kind of an entity that is permitted already by a health department to do food production? Why don't we use that in conjunction with a vocational training program, and let's let students work with this food and create meals? And we've formulated a network of food repurposing kitchens. Uh, Our first one is rather famous, Bracken's Kitchen um, in Southern California in Garden Grove, uh, social enterprise. Next up, we went with Orange Coast College, a community college with a state-of-the-art culinary facility, nine kitchens, one of them just dedicated to food repurposing. Uh, They are also a middle school that has a move from a home ec to a a culinary program. So it creates a seven-year vocational training pathway. And then a uh, social enterprise that is a cafe that is 
um, staffed by those coming out of the foster youth program. And then some are just private companies. But the idea is in my previous life, we ran restaurant chains and we ran a central kitchen to service 65 restaurants. Brutal overhead. People don't realize the cost of having a central kitchen or a commissary. The utility bills are through the roof. Um, and we, I remember we had one shift, an eight hour shift. We did, um, meal production or food production. We also did USDA, um, inspected, uh, meat cutting facilities. So we did portion control steaks and hamburger patties, et cetera, just for our restaurants. Well, the overhead was brutal. So the solution was, well, let's go and start making product for another restaurant chain. So that way we're running two shifts in that same building rather than one. And that's how we kind of landed on this repurposing kitchen concept. Um, look, if you fundraise to build a kitchen, you're not even halfway there. You got to, you have to be able to afford to operate this thing every single day. So <laughs> rather than, yeah, so rather than provide that upfront cost and have to continue to, um, you know, take on that financial nut, let's have the work done by an existing establishment. Yeah. During COVID, I think we have five kitchens up and running during COVID. Uh, they were making on an average of 63,000 meals a week during COVID. Wow. Because there was a glut of food out there. And then there was also the ability to use these kitchens to produce food. Um, and, and I have to share with you, the other component that we saw, the other gap was just the cold storage gap. So what a bound food care does is just try to maximize the impact food can have. So we had to develop 40-foot shipping containers used to move food back and forth across the ocean, we've converted them to fully sustainable solar. The idea is they're a phenomenal resource for food banks. Uh, they're a tool for communities that are underserved, meaning they have food deserts. You now have the ability to store food there. When we do uh, food repurposing in our kitchens, uh, we provide them the ability to do vacuum sealing, reverse oxygen packaging. In other words, what you're doing is taking end-of-life food, you're extending the shelf life by up to two weeks. So you, theoretically, you now have that ability to move food across an expansive geographic area. If you freeze it, you have well over a year. That became the nexus for an emergency food program. So we use these solar-powered freezers. We produce meals with excess edible food. Those meals are stored in these freezers. When the big earthquake or a tsunami or a flow, whatever disaster hits, wildfires, those uh, that community is no longer cut off from services. They no longer have to be concerned that they have to wait three days for FEMA and the Red Cross to get in. They now have ready to thaw and eat nutritious meals that they can uh, consume that will keep them going. So th that's where we look for you know, if we have to develop a solution, let's see where it can be applicable in different areas. And, you know, those are like, if if we just like unpack all that you just shared, and I'm not going to unpack it all, just tidbits, because it was all such wonderful information. You're, you described the evolution and the steps that you took as an organization to address each aspect of what you saw as an opportunity. Uh, and I love how you broke it up. And I love that not only were you reducing waste, you were also repurposing. You were finding ways to extend life. You were finding ways to get that nutrition-rich food to those in need. 
And then also taking a look at, okay, so now how do we extend the life? And we put them in freezers so that in fact, now in a disaster, we're able to store these items in these containers and they're able to be placed mobily and they're solar powered. Like there's a lot of evolution that's happened from that, Mike, and or in that process. Like what was like, if we think just for a pause for a moment, like there was something behind all this, meaning why? Why did you feel that this was such a critical thing to focus on, Mike? Like what what's behind this? Like why did you go to all this effort to be so helpful? Yeah, it, it started with the fact, as I mentioned, that I'm, I'm third generation. So literally everything I've ever had in life has come from food. I value it differently than most people do. I was embarrassed and disappointed that we wasted food every day in our operation, but we're consumer driven. So in other words, you know, brand, as we mentioned, is most important. If that plate doesn't look just right, something's not right. You don't serve it. You make it again. That's just the reality. Yeah. It also marries with the other component. Hospitality, as you know, is, is what we're all born into. It's what, you know, it's what's in our blood. We want to serve people. But I got to share the other aha moment for us, we were invited, I think, in 2017 to the state of Mississippi, and it was on the request of the by the request of the governor's office. And they saw what we were doing in Orange County, averaging 20 million pounds of food recovered a year through this collaborative network, uh, tracking where that food is going, the success rate, et cetera. And most importantly, it was all collaborative. It was it was really connecting all these nonprofit agencies so that everybody had a role. And we were invited to Mississippi and they said, look, we're looking to address the social determinants of health. Those environmental, and I don't mean environmental as in the planet, environmental meaning the environment with which you live in, all those challenges that lead to poverty and ultimately to homelessness are in where you live. And they're different to every area or region. So, for example, they would say, if you look at the social determinants of health as a wheel, we think food insecurity is a spoke, and we think your model helps address and reduce food insecurity and food waste. And we went to Mississippi, we did our presentation, we did our did our dog and pony show, came back to Southern California. And um, six weeks later, we follow up and, you know, we hadn't heard from anybody. And we we talked to a Mississippi state senator, this colorful guy. And he goes, hey, no one's talked to you yet, have they? I said, no, no, they haven't. He goes, yeah, they won't. He goes, one thing that we're missing here, uh, you're not you're not one of the spokes in the wheel of social determinants of health. Make no mistake. And I went, oh, really? Okay. Well, we, you know, we saw Elvis's birthplace. That was kind of cool. That was, <laughs> wasn't a waste of time. <laughs> and the guy goes, you are the hub of the wheel. Food is the one thing you need every day. He says, uh, you can be uneducated for life. And he goes, Lord knows my my in-laws are like that. <laughs> he goes, <laughs> you can be unhoused for an extended period of time, unhealthy for an extended period. All these environmental issues you can live with for a period of time. But the one thing you need every day is food. So why are we taking food out in the parks where homeless people are at? It's great. We're sustaining them for another day. But what impact are we having on that condition? That was the aha moment. That's when we went, it's true. Food is the attraction. Why don't we have those other tools and resources that address those root causes of poverty that lead to food insecurity? Food insecurity is just a symptom. It is not the disease. And quite honestly, it's not the same as hunger. 
We have food insecurity in the United States. We have that inability to consistently access the nutrition that we need. And for that reason, and based on the amount of food we waste, we absolutely have the ability to end food insecurity if we just identify or strengthen that system. But then where we're having uh, an exponential impact is when we're using that food and we also have healthcare mental health clinics, we have that access to resources that will get to the root cause of why they're in that condition. That has become our goal is to just maximize the impact this excess edible food can have. And that's so wonderful. And and it's, it's a good point. Food, you know, kids that don't eat a meal before they go into school don't learn anything because they're so distracted by the fact that they're hungry. Programs have come into play that have helped to support a student who goes into school, who's in school, who gets a meal, at least one meal. Um, there are serving sites throughout the country and throughout the, the, the state that are available to those in need that um, help to address some of the difficulties related to food insecurity and food deserts. You know, there's, there's all these really cool ideas that we're trying to put into place. How, I guess, the, the challenge I think, at least for us that we face and for many others that we talk to, is how do we keep it all funded? Like we have these really wonderful ideas. We've seen what's truly happening. We understand that it's not only impacting the planet through uh, you know greenhouse gases that are emitted when food goes into the ground improperly and killing Mother Earth. It also, to your point, addresses root cause issues. There, there are root cause issues that are causing people to be in a situation where they find themselves unhoused. Um, providing them meals, they have to eat. I love that. You're right. They have to eat. These are all what we're doing. Like you and I are involved in this day-to-day activity. How do we fund this? Like, where does the funding come from? How do we talk about continuing to sustain the activity that needs to occur and needs to support the activity that you and I are both involved in. What what would you say to that? I would say the beauty of uh, food recovery is that it has a variety of cost benefits for a variety of uh, organizations or entities and sectors. In other words, what we tend to look for is we tend to look for the ATM machine. This is where we're going to go for this. It's not that easy. Because now it's a disproportionate percentage of the cost is is uh, taken on by one sector. So, for example, in California, as you mentioned, we have SB 1383, which is the part of the state's climate change initiative to reduce greenhouse gases by re- uh, eliminating or reducing the amount of organic matter that goes in the landfills and creates methane gas. We are now skewed to the environmental side only. <clears throat> in other words... The, the unintended consequence of 133, which, you know, California is the first one to do this. And there's an old saying in business, the first one through the door gets their teeth kicked in. It's so true. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But California took the initiative literally, and they should be commended for that. There are unintended qu- consequences, though. One of those consequences is that we are putting, uh, uh, I think, an undue burden on on municipalities or jurisdictions, specifically uh, public works, waste and recycling departments, people who went into their careers without any knowledge of the food industry and the food system, and we're expecting them to be experts in this. It's just, it's not realistic. 
we are only looking at it from this environmental perspective. We're missing the opportunity to look at it from another perspective, which is the benefit, the health and human services side. So to me, this solution is that if we look at where the cost benefits are, then there's a potential funding stream. Now everybody's paying a little bit of it, but they're still getting value. They're still getting a return on that investment. So for example, municipalities have to comply with SB 1383. Every city's struggling with finances right now with, with funding. So it's unreasonable to think they can take on that, that nut uh, exclusively. Uh, the food industry will have a benefit if we can reduce their costs, there's a benefit to them. The healthcare industry, as we mentioned, if we can get people who are food insecure that have a medical condition, chronic disease created by food insecurity or resulting in food insecurity, uh, if we can provide them with consistent access to nutrition, there will be positive health outcomes. A third out, aha moment, David. My mom, wife of a chef, very talented in her own right at 89 years old, living by herself, she had uh, swollen legs, brutally swollen legs, enormous. She looked like a you know lineman for the you know for a football team, and she had these open sores in her legs. So she had to have home health care come and treat those open sores in her feet and her legs every day. Oh. She was on blood pressure medication. She was on diabetes medication. Well, her moron son had no idea that she wasn't capable of cooking her own food anymore. So she was going and getting everything in cans. All everything was uh, uh, processed. I take her to a doctor's appointment for the first time. The doctor says she's got too much sodium. So we start making her these meals uh, from repurposed food, low sodium, vacuum sealed, packaged. Her fridge and freezer is now full of these meals. Within six weeks, the swelling of her legs goes down. She no longer needs that, that home health care. She comes off of one of her meds. There is a cost savings to the health care provider because she was no longer food insecure. She had the nutrition she needed. Again, that's another cost benefit. If, if we go up and down the line, we can see where there are all these cost benefits. But in order to determine that and ultimately get to a return on investment, when it comes to funding edible food recovery, we have to follow the, the food. And we don't do that. We don't follow it all the way through. We determine success in California or in most places as we recovered food and we got it to a nonprofit agency. There's an assumption that 100% of recovered food is diverted from landfill. We know it's not accurate. It's not true. true. There's another yeah. assumption that all that food is, is feeding people. Not accurate. So how can we really get to the return on investment? What we should be doing is looking at the, what is the value of the food? In other words, in California, we look at bread and we value it in the food recovery perspective, the same as protein and grains and produce. So while jurisdictions are struggling with how do we fund food recovery, and the law specifically says a jurisdiction has to fund the infrastructure needed to recover all excess edible food, but we're not putting any emphasis on the throughput of that food. We're only looking at the capacity to receive and recover that food. So ostensibly, we're going to build warehouses and buy more trucks to handle bread that has no throughput, that has no uh, endpoint. And we're clogging the system. We're not able to go after the food that is of value, that is in need. So there is a low hanging fruit, no pun intended component of this, of where we should be looking at. What is the value of this food? Let's prioritize that. Now, the next part of it is, 
if we take that food and we can identify what impact it has, not only on people, but on the communities, and we follow that all the way through, we get closer to a true cost, a return on investment. So for example, the repurposing kitchens, they have vocational training programs. There's social entrepreneur opportunities. In an underserved community, if that kitchen can provide vocational culinary training skills, that leads to employment with a job that is way above minimum wage and leads to a spider web of professional opportunities, both in and out of kitchens and restaurants, we're now giving the people the opportunity to be self-sufficient. If we make those that have been in that industry who love it and have a great idea and who are talented, the opportunity to become social uh, entrepreneurs, provide them with access to capital they can't get through the traditional financing system, they're now able to become employers. And now they start hiring people within that same underserved community. So rather than having a, a drain of talent leaving an underserved community, they stay there. And that's how we turn around neighborhoods. That's how we get underserved communities to be more productive. And ultimately, that's how we stem the tide of, of homelessness. Uh, right now, we're just hosing the driveway uphill. We pump money into to Band-Aids, but we're really not getting to the root cause. So when it comes to funding, let's look at where all these cost benefits are. And then let's look at now that true cost and that return on investment. And now it starts to become more in focus and it starts to become clearer. And it's an easier sell to a jurisdiction or an elected to say, look, you're going to invest $200,000 a year in a food recovery program, but here's what it's going to do for your community. Your property crime is going to go down. Your test scores or your performance in your school districts are going to go up. You're going to have a reduced level of homelessness. There are all these ancillary benefits. We just have to work together to identify them. Yeah. And I, I love that you bring it down to the detail like that, Mike. And and I think the other opportunity, you know, I'm, I'm going to have Dr. Cisneros on also to talk about his project um, that he's doing within the emergency room, addressing, you know, patients, patient care, and how you use food that would otherwise go into the landfill to help to address health outcomes. Um, you know, I think insurance companies could be involved in how they help to support that activity as well. The complexities around all of that are things that we're going to have to bring to this conversation for sure, so that in turn, we can look at what is the true benefit for a business to not only contribute donations to reduce food waste, but also improve health outcomes through what they have provided to a food recovery organization to use through these avenues of either patient care or through direct connect from the nonprofit to the communities that they serve. So, you know, these, these ideas are there. We're talking about them. We're all trying to figure out solutions that are sustainable. I wonder why there aren't more people that are as actively involved in this space as we are, Mike. What do you think the, the, the roadblocks are? What do you think are the obstacles that you find in your experience to keep us from getting to that, that solution that you talk about? How do we get there? Yeah, I, th I think we're getting there. Uh, when we connect the dots, then you get more people aboard, more entities aboard, more sectors aboard. We are reinforced or encouraged and funded to do the minimum. So we always say that uh, the problem in the nonprofit sectors, they tend to work in silos. Well, that's not their fault. 
nonprofits are having to go out and fundraise. So they go to philanthropists. Uh, they'll try to get contracts with jurisdictions, maybe regardless. But every step of the way, it, it's just they measure success by you never fail. So, for example, if I need a refrigerated truck, I'm going to go and ask a, a foundation to provide me with a truck. I'm not. I'm telling you, I'm going to use it to pick up food. There are no outcomes associated with that. So we are, if I could use the analogy, we're just, you know, this is like a hurdle and it's three inches off the ground. We're just stepping over the hurdle over and over and, and patting ourselves on the back because we can say we have a hundred percent success rate. We're not encouraging the opportunity to go after the bigger price that, you know, you clear the nine foot hurdle once, or, you know, you clear that mark once and you've succeeded because through failure, we learn things from it and we'll get better. So philanthropy has to change. How we fund things have to change. That's why I'm very excited. We we may have the opportunity to be, in essence, a grantor on behalf of a county and all of their cities. And a bound food care now gets to be able to help build and implement a food donation program and provide funding and do it in a way that rewards outcomes. So basically, we're going to fund impact. We're not funding the activity. The activity is going and picking up food. The impact is you're getting food that's feeding people that has this positive outcome on them. So we're really excited to be able to do that. Um, that is to us where the key is. It, the system has to evolve and it's getting there. You mentioned healthcare. Great example. Five years ago, we sat with a county's uh, Medicare health system provider. We sat with the CEO and we said, look, there's you know what we just mentioned. There's cost benefits of, with access to nutrition. And the response we got was, yeah, but we get reimbursed by the feds. So we don't, you know, we're not incentivized to reduce those afflictions. We get paid to treat the affliction. And it was disturbing. And we have now evolved. So for example, our food repurposing kitchens now have the ability to create medically tailored meals because they're now reimbursed by the federal government for this access to nutrition. We hear the buzzwords, food is medicine, medically tailored meals. The reality is that we've come a long way. Now, again, if we can show what the impact, the cost benefit is, uh, now we'll be able to get further with that. And that brings healthcare providers into the space. It brings healthcare agencies into the space. It's no, we're no longer just solely reliant on this environmental side or the nonprofit sector if you're outside of California. Right on. I guarantee you, though, there aren't a lot of people that know about the things that you've described today in our conversation that I think as you, if you're a listener and you've selected this podcast to take take time out of your life and listen to there's a lot of really wonderful things happening in this space that not everybody is aware of. And if you've heard something that Mike has said or I have said, we've had this opportunity to listen to all the activity he's been involved in. I hope it pokes something at you to go find out more. You know, reach out to Mike directly at Abound Food. Reach out to me at Loaves and Fishes. You know, there's a way to get this momentum that Mike talked about to continue to move forward. There's a way for us as a people to work together at not only reducing food waste, but feeding the people that are in need as well. And 
that culinary side of my spirit as well. We have our commercial kitchens that we do uh, repurposing. And I'm going to pick your brain, Mike, you know, later on in the future about the processes that you've put in place, especially when we open up our kitchen and we have our culinary institute. You know, I, I want to, and I know we'll talk more, but, you know, if, if there was something that you could pull out of what you've shared that truly you'd love to see get to its next phase or the next step, or what would you like to leave us with as far as your vision? What do you see happening? What's the timeline that you'd like to see it occur? Yeah. And, and I appreciate the question and I have to just identify you guys. You're, you're soldiers. I mean, you're musicians, you're in the trenches, the nonprofit agencies that feed people, the food bank, every, you guys are musicians. We're really not a musician. We are, you know, we fancy ourselves somewhat of a conductor, maybe even a guest conductor. You know, we, we are not a tuba player. We will just come in. If you need a sheet of music, we'll provide a sheet of music, but we just make sure that everything's firing in all cylinders. We're, we're able to make this, uh, you know, this beautiful music together. And to that end, what we really need is all of us to come together. This doesn't work city by city, county by county, even region. This really works when we're fully connected. Great example. One of the things we're working on, and we're very, very close, is to have a bulk purchasing program that allows nonprofits at a national level to be able to purchase products at a at the same level as a major chain of operators, whether it's retail, grocery, food service. But that ability it would be a huge savings for these agencies. Those agencies can now redirect funds towards a greater impact, either feeding more people or serving more people or bringing in other tools and resources that fill another gap. That's where we really are going to come together when we're able to all share what we're doing, work together. It, we're not competing. You know, we really are going to get further if we just uh, collaborate. Yeah. And I appreciate that. And I think the reality for me is, is that's what we're trying to do in this conversation and every conversation that you and I participate in with the committees that we're both involved in. Collaboration, I think, is king or queen, however you want to phrase it. Um, and I think the purpose of of what we're trying to do here at Loaves and Fishes is to bring people to the table to have the conversation. So as the listeners out there, again, the hope and the call to action is to get involved. Get involved. If you hear something that Mike has said that, that sparks interest, do something about it. You know, we've had meeting upon meeting upon meeting upon meeting. We need to get into action. And I say this on every podcast. I'm a hippie with short hair. I want to see everybody get along, right? You know, I, I, I'd love to see us create a solution that all of us agree to. That's just not going to happen. <laughs> We're going to disagree. However, the disagreement shouldn't cause a pause and a stop in the activity. And so I hope that we as a group together collectively can work towards a solution that's sustainable. And I also appreciate your comment about the food recovery organizations on the ground are doing the work and the, the foot soldiers because they are, and there's some wonderful organizations doing the work of food recovery. We're just one of many. And if more come together 
and are willing to share best practices, share how they're doing things and not get so concerned about where the funding's coming from. If we just talk about what the solution is, I think that we're better served as a community at large. Um, So Mike, is there some final thought that you'd like to leave us with that you'd love the listeners to remember Mike by um, related to the effort that's going on now in the space? The the one thing would be, to just remember that we have the ability to use food to have this maximum impact on the health of people, on communities, and the environment. And all the pieces are in place. We just need to move some things around. We need to activate more individuals, more entities, and just connect the dots. But it is within our ability to uh, not only reduce food insecurity, but dramatically improve uh, the health and well-being of individuals. Right on, Mike. I appreciate that. And to the listeners out there, you know, Mike came, you know, to the conversation with a ton of solutions. He's had a lot of experience in every avenue of the food space that we've discussed. So please don't don't hesitate to reach out about. Can you tell us more about where you're located and how people can contact you, Mike? Yeah, you can find us aboundfoodcare.org. Uh, you can always email me directly, Mike at aboundfoodcare.org, uh, social media channels as well. We are uh, headquartered in Southern California and Orange County, but we work um, not only throughout the state of California, but abroad. Uh, just in the last month and a half, I've been in Athens. We've been in Michigan. We've been in Chicago. We've been, uh, we'll soon be in Houston and Florida. In other words, there's national resources available to this. While the work is done locally, we need to activate this national solution. Right on, right on. Thank you, Mike. And again, I really appreciate your time and and bringing such wonderful conversation to the space and being on the program. Thank you so much, Mike. Well, before I go, I got to thank you because from the day we met, it was so nice to meet someone who had the same passion, the same desire to work together. Uh, you've been a resource for me more than I've been a resource for you. And it's, you know, it's the, that's the best kind of relationship when each one thinks the other one uh, has done more for them. <laughs> right on. Right on. Thank you, Mike. And I appreciate you saying that. And I, I did not pay him to make that comment. Um, you know, I, I love that I get to, I'm a middle child and, and, you know, I love people and I'm never one to think I know it all. I actually love to learn from everybody and everybody has something to contribute. And Mike, thank you so much. Even if we're going through a tornado at the next conference together, <laughs> you know, it, you know, that's another story for another time. Ask him about if you give him a call, but, you know, I really cherish and appreciate our conversations and, and I wish you all the success. And I know this won't be the last time we chat. Thank you so much, David. I appreciate it. Yeah, you bet, man. You have a wonderful day. Thank you. You too. Thank you so much for joining us today on this episode. I appreciate your time and consideration with all the podcasts that are out there in the ether. I thank you for choosing this one. Remember that if you'd like to be part of the conversation, please contact me directly at david at loavesfishes.org. Together, we can accomplish many things. And I hope the conversation that you heard today will help to influence you to be part of said conversation. Take good care. And until next time, be blessed.